Hey everyone, back again. We got a long one this time, so I'm just going to almost cut right to it. Uh, if you want to support me, there are links for that in the description. If you want to follow me, there are links for that as well. So we're continuing A Thousand Plateaus today, discussing chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. And those are the chapters, uh, November 20th, 1923, Postulates of Linguistics, that's chapter 4. Chapter 5 is 587 BC to 70 AD on the several regime, regime of signs. Uh, chapter 6 is November 28th, 1947. How do you make yourself a body without organs? And then chapter 7 is uh, year zero faciality. You'll be able to find uh, timestamps for those in the description. So if you only want one chapter, then you can find that easily there. And now without further ado, let's jump right into it with chapter 4, Postulates of Linguistics. So uh, November 20th, 1923. Now this date marks the day that the Weimar Republic in Germany, uh, their Reichsmark, which was their currency, inflated to the point that it became useless and it was replaced. Uh, and that, that will be significant as it will, as will play out here. So this chapter is essentially broken into four subchapters, each of which, each subchapter is a quote from like linguistics that they're going to have a problem with. So with each sub uh, chapter, you will see how they kind of combat each because they have a lot of problems with linguistics and semiotics, and that'll really come out here. So the first sub chapter goes as follows, or at least this is the quote, language is informational and communicational. So for example, when, when they, you know, we think that we use language in order to communicate to other people, things in the world. So I have language so I, I can tell someone about like a wolf that's about to attack me or something. So it is informational and it is uh, communicational in that it is able to communicate information. Deleuze and Guattari are not satisfied with this because it's, I guess, right out, off the bat, too positivist. Is too positivistic. That is, it, it hinges too much upon the human development of language purely out of benevolence. So it doesn't consider the ways in which language is a means of control. Specifically, they consider the way a school teacher uses language or when a school teacher is teaching about language, like grammar or syntax or something. What they are doing, that is the school teacher for Deleuze and Guattari, is they are imposing an order on an already ordered world. That is, they are setting out rules that must be followed that, and they must be followed to a T or else you won't be understood because so much hinges upon language, which, you know, anyone who has any sense of Deleuze and Guattari up until this point would know that any place that we invest all of our energy is going to lead us astray. So in their words, language is made not to be believed, but to be obeyed. Additionally, they write, we give children language, pens, and notebooks as we give workers shovels and pickaxes. So if language was just this benevolent thing that humans did for their own good, why do we have such, uh, um, such stringent measures to kind of code it, to, to teach it, to mandate it? Language is actually then for them decidedly 
anti-communicational because it is, you know, this kind of structured thing that is meant to impose an order. It then only communicates not not things in the world, as the, you know, the semioticians would say, where you have the, a signifier in language signifying a thing in the world. Instead, when you are given language, when you are communicated language, you are only communicated language. That is, only language is given to you. So language exists then for the sake of language. It refers to itself, not to communicate or relay information. So this is essentially to contrast to something like, uh, like a bee. And they give the example of a bee who finds a source of food. The bee is then able to go to the hive and say, I found food in whatever way they do it, you know, communicationally, able to go to the hive and say, I found food. But other bees who have not seen the food cannot relay that information to other bees. So this is an example in which um, the real world is communicated through language because the bee, only the bee that saw it can communicate the thing. So you can't have a kind of simulation. That is, you can't have a bee who just heard about the thing in the real world and only received the signifier or the kind of um, you know, the linguistic form, they can't then transmit that to another bee. So with this being said, how do Deleuze and Guattari fit in the world of linguistics? Well, in this whole chapter, they're going to take on a number of people uh, and they're going to present a whole, a whole slew of them. So they're going to present uh, like J.L. Austin's theory of uh, the speech act, uh, the, the work of uh, Bonvenist, uh, Chomsky, and I think another one, but it doesn't really matter. So they present Austin's idea of speech act theory and Bombanist's idea of self-referentiality of speech act theory, essentially pointing to subjects and, um, sorry, Ducrot's reversal of Bombanist's idea that the cultural uh, appreciation of the performative acts is necessary to constitute subjects and not the other way around. So we have speech act theory, which they kind of gloss over because speech act theory is kind of, you know, for those that don't know, it is the idea that there is not only what is said in the words of language, but there's also stuff being said in who says it and in how they say it. So there's more to language than just the content of the words, which obviously fits into what they're doing over the course of this book, really tracing out the differences between content and expression and how they both have their own form and they're both substance, uh, which you can find in the first episode I, I touch on a lot more. So then you get someone like Bombinist, whose, whose idea about self-referentiality of the speech act theory uh, kind of constitutes subjects in that, uh, this is, I guess I should frame it this way, the subject is constituted in their perf uh, capacity to perform these acts. You know, they, they demonstrate their ability to act in the world. Whereas Ducrot comes in and he's like, well, it seems more like our culture's appreciation of only some uh, kind of performances signal that only some people can be considered subjects in that way. And so it is, uh, they precede the subjects, the kind of cultural appreciation of the proper performative acts that you then match or oppose will determine your place as a subject. Now, all of this isn't all that important as we move on, but it's just kind of good to put it out there. So in opposition to all of these kind of linguistic thinkers, 
They say that language, and this should already be clear, is not just about communicating. And it's not just about, you know, what is said beyond the saying of language. It's not just about the content or the form of it, but the political side of it. And that is why we have language as a tool to uh, order the world. So what comes first then is a desire through what they call order words to essentially order the world. So any designation or any recognition of a performative act or a subject then follows, uh, that then I guess comes after this construction of the order word. And because of this, because of this order word that we can only assume uh, participates in the construction of an order world. It's just a play on words that I'm using that I didn't, I don't think they mentioned in here. Um, it is because of that that we don't actually have anything like individual enunciation or a subject of enunciation, because no one speaks as though they are truly speaking from themselves as a as a like a kind of unitary, isolated thing. You are always speaking in accordance with. A, a very broad structure, a very broad coded structure or assemblage in their vernacular. And it is in this kind of order word, the use of the order word, that we see the formation not of subjects, but of subjectification. So the subject that emerges is not one to celebrate. It's not a subject that is open to limitless potential. It is a subject that is subjectified. They are made to be under the control of something. And the way that this control manifests itself is in the things that we say, where we are never actually speaking what they call, you know, direct discourse. We only ever speak indirect discourse. That is, we only are ever speaking through the words of somebody else because we are all bound by this kind of communicative structure. And that pushes us into the second subchapter, and this is the quote. There is an abstract machine of language that does not appeal to an extrinsic factor. So they are going to trouble this because they are going to include uh, what they call, you know, pragmatics. So they are going to look beyond just language as though language is this thing that floats above everything else, you know, this benevolent um, kind of universal mode of communication floats above everything else in the form of words and excludes all of the other dynamics, you know, imminent to our being in the world. And so they want to think of the world not in terms of the signifier-signified relationship, but rather in terms of the, the kind of tension between content and expression, keeping in mind that both content and expression can have form and substance, as we talked about in the last episode. So you can have a kind of linguistic description, for example, of a corporeal event uh, in the form of a kind of non-corporeal act. So there is not then, you know, transcendental signifiers over signifieds in the world. Rather, we recognize both that the signifieds, the content in the world, has can have a form or a substance, and the so-called signifiers can both can as well have a form and a substance. So in recognizing this, suddenly we can see a bigger picture of the c connections in terms of representation across various different objects in the world and ways by which these objects communicate and they adhere to one another. So it, it starts to open up the categories from the signifier 
signified relationship. And this brings us closer then to that idea of the plane of consistency, where there isn't this hierarchical signifier signified relationship, but an entire amalgamation of, of possible effects. Now, one of the things that I want to really uh, drill into your head is that they have a pretty ambiguous relationship to deterritorialization, where and I hear this too often that like Deleuze and Guattari are just thinking about deterritorialization and how do they deterritorialize and how deterritorialization is necessarily or necessarily implies like a kind of good, uh, a good move. Deterritorialization can be either good or bad. And we're going to get more into that throughout the course of the chapter. But for now, we can think of the signifier signified relationship and what Deleuze and Guattari are opposing to that with their more holistic broader understanding as both forms of deterritorialization. But the first, the signifier signified one, is deterritorialization in the in the way that like the signifier is detached from the real world. There's a kind of deterritorialization in that way. And there is a subsequent re-territorialization in the signified. So we see then that it's can be bad and then we see a deterritorialization in this other consideration of content and expression. So yeah, I'm just putting that out there. So to kind of return to the title of the subchapter that is dealing with the abstract machine of language, what they have a problem with is not that uh, linguistics is too abstract, and that is because it abstracts language from the everyday world. In fact, they're saying that it is not abstract enough because it is not considering the entire, the I guess what I will reluctantly call the totality of all possible significations in terms of content and expression and form and substance. So it is not restricted to language because language itself isn't just comprised of signifiers, but language can be a signified to other signifiers, which is then a signified to other ones, or better yet, we just use their formula that it has both a form and a substance as expression. So because of that, they want to supplant the abstract machine of linguistics with an abstract machine of this kind of schizo framework, which I always like, I didn't mention this last time, but like their whole discussion about schizoanalysis, I find, I just don't like it for two reasons. Firstly, I just find it problematic. Uh, and secondly, I have no idea what it actually has to do with schizophrenia at all, like at all. Um, and so... I just have trouble swallowing that pill, but anyway. So that puts us here into the third subchapter. There are constants or universals of language that enable us to define it as a homogenous system. So this is the li linguistic belief that there are these universals in language that permit us to develop a kind of science of language. And I'm spilling over into the fourth subchapter, but anyways. So here are the invariants or the universals of language as they recognize them. So there are the constants of language, which are the phonological by communicativity, the syntactical, and the semantic. Now, number two, there are the universals of language by decomposition of the phoneme into distinct features of syntax into fundamental constituents of signification into minimal semantic elements. Uh, the third one is the trees or linguistic trees linking constants to one another with binary relations between trees, number four, competence in principle coextensive with language and defined by judgments of grammar, 
grammaticality, Jesus. Uh, number five, homogeneity, bearing on elements and relations as well as intuitive judgments. And then number six, finally, synchrony, which erects it an in itself and a for itself of language that is, you know, kind of indifferent to other things and it just floats above everything else, essentially. So it's not too important that you actually know these, like, memorize these because Deleuze and Guattari are just, they're just getting rid of them anyways. So the two figures that they kind of take on here, one more than the other, are Noam Chomsky and uh, someone named Labov. I assume it's Labov or, or Labov, um, where Chomsky has a faith in, certainly in a kind of scientific understanding of linguistics, as though there are these unchanging elements about language, while Labov or Labov acknowledges that no such structure or universals exist. So they... Deleuze and Guattari recognize something good in Labov and that he's he's not just saying that, you know, there there's these universals that obviously isn't true. But in any case, um, they want to move beyond, beyond him. So quite simply, for Deleuze and Guattari, we inhabit many languages. It's not like at any point we're speaking one language. When I'm in front of this microphone, I'm speaking a very different language than when I'm speaking with, I don't know, my family members or, uh, you know, students or friends or something. And someone might counter this and say, well, it's still the same language, you know, maybe it's just a different like dialect or something. But they counter that counter by saying that the differences syntactically and phonetically might in themselves be enough to constitute a new language. But additionally, the most drastic linguistic revolutions or evolutions in the history of humankind never happened overnight. Rather, they come about in these extremely subtle changes. So we cannot downplay the uh, variations, the minimal variations that occur between speaking subjects in different settings and how those minimal variations constitute much more than just a little change or difference. They might be precursors to gigantic overhauls. And all of this shouldn't be surprising. You know, they're going to celebrate the ways that, you know, these little changes can affect giant systems. But they also want to qualify this by saying that they aren't just celebrating difference or, or variation in itself. Instead, they only want to celebrate like certain kinds. And to illustrate this, they use the example of music or specifically music theory. And it's funny because I've just been learning about this in, in music theory, so it was fun to see them apply it. But if you have a scale, let's say you have a C scale comprised of the notes C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, uh, and you were to play those, you could then, with that scale, come up with what are called like diatonic, you know, chord voicings, or um, which is probably the wrong term, but a kind of diatonic series of notes from that scale. So with the C scale, you can then transform it into not C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, but uh, C major 7 maybe to D um, minor 7 to E minor 7 to F major 7 to G7 to A minor 7 to B half diminished to C wh whatever something like that but for them these variations that are present in what are they call correctly these kind of diatonic transformations are still tethered to this kind of major scale formation that is the C major scale in this case. Now they oppose to that chromaticism 
So chromaticism in music is when you move up just a single note. So let's say you're a C, you move up a single note to a C sharp, or you move back a single note to a B. So you can go B, C, C sharp, or B, C, D flat. And through chromaticism, you actually open the door for more uh, poignant variation. You, you open the door to more jarring variation that opens up the possibility for newness in a way that the diatonic scales do not allow. So linguistics for them is diatonic. It's, it, you know, it's only presenting these variations as though they're uh, always tethered to this kind of um, major scale. And it doesn't account for the ways that language can actually escape from these kind of limitations in its chromaticism. What they also call continuous variation, variation that's always happening. So essentially by identifying it as continuous variation or chromaticism, they move beyond just variation. In their words, it has not variably or obligatory rules, but optional rules, optional rules that ceaselessly vary with the variation itself. So it is the abstract machine in this case that kind of puts these into motion. It allows these possibilities, but the abstract machine is kind of indifferent. And we will come to see the abstract machine falls onto a stratum. It establishes a stratum, but then it can, get, it can grow comfortable there and, and not want to move from it. And it can get stuck. Um, where then we have, uh, in a, a, a opposition to that, we have the concrete assemblages, the kind of strict um, structural formation of the stratum. We have these kind of assemblages that treats variables and organizes their, highly, their highly diverse relations as a function of those lines. So this is how the abstract machine and the concrete assemblages kind of work in tandem. And it is in this way that we can we mistakenly or linguistic linguists mistakenly see there to be these invariants when they're just like liminal assemblages that we take to be like universal. And that here propels us into the fourth subchapter with the quote, language can be scientifically studied only under the conditions of a standard or major language. So for instance, you have like English and then you have like different dialects of English. Like you have Southern, you know, United States English, which is vastly different from New Yorker English or you have British English or whatever. Now they just, they have little patience for this because what is the major language to English? How do you say that one form of English is superior to any other? Or French, you know, or any language for that matter? Well, Deleuze and Guattari say that the linguists have no, no um, explanation for this, but they believe that linguists only believe there to be a major language or a kind of science, scientific possibility to the study of language to justify their existence as linguists. So the linguists treat minor languages, so these kind of dialects within language, as variable. They are derivative from the major language, while the major language contains the kind of invariants or universals. So Deleuze and Guattari obviously have no patience for this. And they say that actually the opposite is the case, because it is in these minor languages, in these kinds of um, small pockets of English speakers that they actually have the greatest coherence because they are, um, you know, bound by their, you know, regionalism or the region or whatever. And that kind of closes off a certain possibility. 
So linguists are way off when they say that the major language is what doesn't change when it is, in fact, these kind of small languages that are much more resistant to change. And the fact that these small languages exist is just testament to the fact that the big language, the major language, has been changing. Like, people are taking it up in totally different ways all across the globe. And it is only in these um, different ways, these varying ways, in these minor languages, that they it takes on a kind of... Um, how many times do I say a kind of? Like, geez, I must drive you guys insane. It takes on a universal status or um or anything. I'm sorry for listeners out there. So they celebrate the fact that there are these minor, so-called minor languages, because that demonstrates that language is always in this kind of continuous variation. It's always in flux. It's always changing. And so they prescribe that to language. They say, well, this is something to take on, become minor, this becoming minor language that gets you away from the uh, boundaries or the supposed dominance of one form of language over the others, which is to become minoritarian in the form of language here. And this is to privilege passage, that is movement transformation over stagnation. And that propels us here into chapter five, 587 BC to 70 AD, on several regimes of signs. And these two dates, uh, 587 and 70 AD, are the two dates in which uh, the Jewish temple was, was destroyed. So for the sake of definition, they define a regime of signs as a formalization of expression, which is like kind of always linguistic. Kind of. I'm emphasizing kind of here. So they say... Regimes of signs are only functions of existence of language that sometimes span a number of languages and are sometimes distributed within a single language. So the regime of signs is kind of what portends or comes before language. So it can then inhabit one language or many different languages can exist, can borrow from a regime of signs. And of course, this moves beyond words because there's like a form of content, a substance of content, form of expression and substance of expression. Don't lose sight of that. Where semiology is then, in their words, only one regime of signs among others and not the most important one. Because they're moving beyond this, this kind of restricted paradigm. So this chapter is in the service of explaining the different stages of signification. And the four that they're going to present, and I'm going to get more into these in more detail as we go through, the four that they represent or present are pre-signifying signification or pre-signifying regimes, counter-signifying regimes or counter-signifying signs, signifying signs or regimes, and then post-signifying signs and regimes. Now, it's important to note that they aren't positioning these as though they occur temporarily, temporally. As though one comes after the other because you can find examples of pre-signifying signs within post-signifying signs or post-signifying regimes and vice versa i think vice versa i don't know you could probably make an argument that you could find post-signifying regimes signs within pre-signifying ones but maybe you can't anyways whatever we're going to get into more detail as we go on here so in the case of signification so this is the third phase I mentioned, that is the signifying regime or the signifying signs, signification, there are different rules. And th this applies to all the different regimes, but different rules kind of code the regime of signs that guide them. 
So for example, under signif signification, the signifying regime, you know, you have temples, palaces, houses, streets that essentially hold certain meaning in accordance with that regime, which delimits or it establishes what those signs are allowed to communicate to one another and to people and to the world, essentially. Now, in the case of signification, where they are going to focus here primarily on signifying regimes and post-signifying regimes, they say that with signifying regimes, all of these different codes, these different what they call circles of, um, I guess, signification, or you could think of it as like a chain of signification where how does the temple relate to the palace or how does the palace and then how does the palace relate to the street or anything like that. The, the ordering of the various signs is guided by a kind of gravitational point that codes these forms, that codes the, the structure, which most often just assumes the form of a despot or god or god king or, or king or, or whatever. So it is in this phase of signification that we see the firm establishment of the signifier-signified relationship, where the signified didn't exist before then, but the signified becomes is introduced into the despot's uh, designation of signs and control of signs in order to provide the veneer of a kind of groundedness or truthfulness to the signs. And this occurs through interpretation. So in their words, the despot gods bureaucrats do this with interpretation or interpretance, where it is their duty, and these assume the form of priests or bureaucrats, you know, bureaucrats, as they already said here, teachers maybe, whatever, that justify the despot's choosing of signs and their possible relationships by pointing to this supposedly true or real object in the world that it is supposed to represent or be a part of. So signification then and interpretation go hand in hand, revealing that the signified is really only another kind of signifier. The signified is not some kind of real thing behind the signifier, but it only enters this particular chain of signification as a signifier that rejuvenates the original signifier that it is meant to kind of... Um, is meant to give life to. So in their words, significance and interpretosis, interpretation, are two diseases of the of the earth or the skin. In other words, humankind's neurosis. So there's an emphasis on signs here where the signified is meant to be just another signifier to another signifier that it is meant to represent ostensibly or or be the point from which the signifier is meant to represent or that the signifier is meant to represent. And so we have what they call a redundancy of signs, a kind of overcoding, which the despot does through deterritorialization. So this is just another example of their kind of ambiguous relationship to deterritorialization, where they see the despot kind of tearing up the earth. The despot makes boundaries and borders, erects strata, you know, lines, walls, um, structures that demarcate the land and it is in that that we see a deterritorialization a move away from what the land dictates roughly in favor of the signifiers that are abstracted from the world that are deterritorialized from the world which then construct an overcoding or then are overcoded 
to re-territorialize the earth with its agenda or to comply with the despot's agenda. Now, the place upon which most of the signification occurs, or at least a, a, a pretty important part, is the face, like human faces, which they talk about more in two chapters. They get into a lot more detail, but they kind of present it here as being the site upon which, you know, identities are inscribed. So they take that as a way by which, or at least by undoing what they call faciality, that we can move beyond the deterritorialization and then subsequent overcoding by the despot to deterritorialize in the favor of becoming, endless becoming, you know, becoming minoritarian, becoming nomad, becoming not structured like this. So this is how we see a tension between becoming in the in the service of re-territorialization or sorry deterritorialization in the face of re-territorialization or overcoding and then deterritorialization in the favor of becoming which is why despots never hide their faces instead they they hide away those people that they condemn cover their faces and i can only think of like abu Ghraib um, as an example where the the prisoners faces were all covered where the people inflicting harm on these on these um these victims were proudly showing their faces as though their faces had nothing to hide. Now, this will come back in a little bit. That is the distinction between the face being present by those in power, the despot, and uh, how it is kind of taken away from those outside of power. And that's not a good thing. It isn't something to celebrate because it's not like, oh, you've gotten rid of faciality. No, it's a forced removal of the face, which is a whole other can of worms. So they oppose to this signifying regime, the, uh, I guess, the pre-signifying and counter-signifying regimes. So there are the examples of nomadic animal raisers, which would be like the examples of um, Ketohoyuk or uh, Tel El Sultan, which is like Jericho, where people had the capacity to, I guess, raise animals or no they didn't there i not in those places anyways imagine nomadic people that had the capacity to raise animals like nomadic animals that moved that roamed with them now these people were the example of counter signifying uh, regime or a semiotic one guided by arithmetic and numeration which was more focused on distributions than collections arrangements rather than totals and um and so therefore resists everything despotic because it isn't like ordered in the way that the despot is. And this site mobilizes the war machine, which we'll get into in a quite a few chapters. I don't want to get into the war machine now, but just keep that on the back burner. Whereas nomadic hunters, so not animal raisers. So this is even, let's say, even more deterritorial, even more nomadic. They aren't quite as organized. Uh, and there appears to be a direct concordance between territory and signs for these people and to an endless chain and therefore not to an endless chain of signification. So these people, that is the nomadic hunters, are pre-signifying because they just seem to do whatever the land dictates. They don't seem to have an order that necessarily is uh, potentiated by language, by signification. So they don't focus on this all too much, just you know, nomadic animal raisers that have some potential for organization are counter-signifying, while you have 
uh, nomadic hunters are pre-signifying. Now, in addition, so we have now pre-signifying, counter-signifying, and signifying, they introduce post-signifying. So whereas under the signifying regime with the despot, there were all of these kind of chains of signification organized around the despot, and there was a lot of deterritorialization occurring, a lot of ripping up and opening up new possibilities, but all of these possibilities beginning from and ending with the despot's desire. So don't think that it's like restricted per se. Now they oppose to that the post-signifying regime that operates by the linear and temporal succession of finite proceedings. And they will come to associate the post-signifying regime not with signification, but with subjectification. So there is an ordering that is not coming from the outside, from a uh, despot god that controls everything and that opens up, you know, these wacky lines of flight wherever the despot god sees necessary. So it erects these temples just for itself and these new connections to God, uh, which might appear to present new possibilities, but are really foreclosed. Now, in the post-signifying regime, we have internalized power to the point that we limit ourselves. And so there are these this succession of finite proceedings, kind of self-control. Now, this is where it gets a little wacky or a little weird, where they apply this distinction between signifying and post-signifying regimes or between signification and subjectification to understand the emergence of the twofold character of psychiatry where psychiatry has had a weird relationship to incarceration, where on the one hand, in the case of rich people, psychiatry has been all about, you know, using um, healing or using like um, institutionalization as a means to make people better. So they don't uh, mix punishment with the treatment in the case of upper class folks, while lower class folks, at least its application was meant to punish the people as well, you know, to keep them away from society, to get keep them in these dungeons instead of being able to move about freely. So in the case where they're allowed to like roam freely, there's the assumption of a kind of self-control, kind of maintenance of, of, a, of control of oneself. So instead of possibilities being seen as negative, where if someone tried to do something on their own under a despot's rule, they would surely be killed. Now it is welcomed because there is the assumption, the kind of tacit um, secret assumption that what the people are doing is will be in the service of the broader system post-signifying regime itself. So they, and it's, I'll be totally honest, it's hard to follow at times their line of argumentation where they say that in this process, there is the perpetual acts of becoming or, or emerging and, and ending. Ending and, and, and birth and end and birth and end and birth, death and birth. Beginning and ending is what I meant to say over and over again in this new uh, framework, instead of under the despot, all of these different lines of flight being constructed in all directions all the time. Now they use the example, this is to explain the title of the chapter, that is 587 and 70 AD, uh, BC then AD, where in the case of the Jewish people who have obviously historically been been oppressed like no other group almost, um, 
the Jewish people who, in each of these cases, had to essentially rebuild uh, when the temple was was destroyed, um, first by the Babylonians, I think, and then the Romans. Uh, and each time they had to start anew. And they use this as a kind of example of the present situation in which there are these constant uh, barriers that we must circumvent. And in, in doing so, we become, we, we are born again, essentially, and have to craft our own way. But it is always kind of guided by this similar logic every time. And I really want to welcome someone to tell me why I'm wrong about this, <laughs> because I'm pr pretty sure that's what they're saying, but I don't know. So this is the phase in which power becomes imminent, that is, it is within us, and melds with the real, operating through normalization, which, you know, we're all familiar with this, if you know Foucault or, you know, feminist thought like Judith Butler or anything, we, we, know, we know this, we know this situation. So there's a simultaneous becoming of self, which is bad in this case, where a self equals self, we are our own identity. And there's also a kind of binarism occurring, and it is a binarism that plays itself in various situations, like when you have to go and engage with like the bureaucratic state apparatus, and you have to speak with like someone who has all the solutions to your problems, but just aren't giving them to you. Uh, <laughs> and you are this kind of lowly subject, kind of stripped of your, your autonomy in that situation. Or in the case of a psychoanalyst and, a, and an analysand, the person being analyzed, what we see is a kind of negotiation between ourselves as these independent, you know, freedom-loving selves versus our always being denied that very autonomy. And this obviously produces a very unsettling experience, which is why they prescribe psychoanalysis or schizoanalysis, sorry, to diagnose that. So in both cases, in both the post-signifying subjectification machine and the um, signifying despotic signifying regime, we have deterritorialization occurring, right? We, we are, in both cases, as I've already said, deterritorialization is happening. And so they say that in order to kind of get out of this, we must turn to the abstract machine that potentiates these. And we get a sense here um, of the way in which they are reformists, because they really have faith in the system finding ways within the system to escape it, which will, it will become more clear in the next two chapters that I get to here. But they say that the abstract machine, which is nestled comfortably within the stratum, that is in this case, the post-signifying stratum, also has its foot, as we've already made clear, in the body without organs or the plane of consistency. So we must ride it essentially to get back to this uh, body without organs. It isn't about going back in time. It is about re-entering a phase in which possibility itself becomes possible again. And they call that, or the potential afforded by the abstract machine, it's diagrammatic potential, it's diagrammatic function, which sketches new lines of flight, new diagrams, in order to re-navigate again into newness. And this can come about through schizoanalysis, of course, as I've already alluded to. Now that propels us here into chapter six, November 28th, 1947. How do you make yourself a body without organs? So this was the date that um, Antonio, Antonio Alto declares war on the organs. So, yeah. So the 
Body Without Organs is a journey, not a destination. It is the, as I just said, it is kind of the pro the possibility of possibility, not like an end point. And we are always on it, even in our most uh, kind of violent stratum, be it uh, the most fascist one or totalitarian one, the body without organs is always looming because the stratum is tied to the body without organs. So it, the body without organs kind of emerges though. It, it rears its head, it perks its ears. In those moments that we wish to be free of our organs, we wish to be free of the stratum in which we are tethered, to which we are tethered. So they say the body without organs is what remains when you take everything away like the fantasies, significances, subjectifications, what psychoanalysis uh, cements in place. You know, psychoanalysis has one thing, like the priest does the same thing and the bureaucrat. So the bead, the body without organs is an egg for them in that the egg is before the organs of the chicken or whatever, whatever animal is gonna come out of the egg. Um, it is before the organs and it is comprised purely of axes, vectors, and intensities that are before the organs and the organization of the organs. And for them, the figure of the body without organs among humans is the masochist. And the masochist is a body without organs partly because in their engaging in masochism, they get rid of their subjectivity, but they also say that it's actually a demonstration of subjectivity because it's someone saying what I want is to be this masochist. So it's difficult to reconcile this, but they are a, a body without organs in that they open themselves up beyond the domain of domination to some extent into new possibilities that are afforded from without, but through their own volition. So it is the body without organs, that is, is the field of imminence of desire, desire within us. And it is the process of production without reference to any exterior agency. So in my mind, to get the best understanding of this is, is from Anti-Oedipus, because it is there that they describe machines, where they don't really talk about it in this book all that much. But how machines work is like every single part of us, you know, humans are comprised of machines. You have the mouth machine and the eye machine and the hand machine and the finger machine, whatever. And these machines connect to other machines. So my hand machine, if my eyes itchy, my hand, my finger machine connects to my eye machine to, to scratch it. And in there is the demonstration of desire, not in the fact that I wanted to scratch my eye, but in the fact that these machines that comprise us always strive to make these connections. And it isn't to satisfy an overall fantasy as though we are just this totality with this fantasy or a lack or a desire. It is instead the constant playing of these machines. And so in that way, it might be antithetical to desire. It might be antithetical to pleasure even. The, the way the machines connect to one another might just be absolutely necessary and it is in that way that it is desire it is desiring production in their words the desiring the connections made between various machines that gives us it not us as like a totality but gives the machine in its connection a possible sense of maybe accomplishment i will just say to be simple about it
So by opposition, you know, the priest, the psychoanalyst always wants to make desire about a lack. You know, you want what you lack. In the case of psychoanalysis, uh, women are ostensibly castrated and so they lack a penis and are always striving to regain that to some extent. Um, whereas, you know, I don't know, men worry they're going to be suffer this lack, so they desire to maintain it. Deleuze and Guattari have no patience for this because, they, you know, they're more interested in what the knee machine is up to than this, like, total Oedipal machine. So in these connections are the actions of perpetual becoming. So these machinic connections form new bonds, form new identities, form new whatevers. So let's return then to the idea of the masochist, who's someone that in getting giving up their autonomy, giving up their kind of personhood, they generate the potential to open themselves up to these new machines in new ways. And they open themselves up to this kind of becoming animal, in their words, which then opens up to this, the, essentially the plane of consistency, which is the totality of all the body without organs, which is a pure multiplicity of, of immanence. So which is essentially comes out in a movement of generalized deterritorialization in which each person takes and makes what she or he can, according to tastes, she or he will have succeeded in abstracting from a self, from our autonomous total selves, according to a politics or strategy successfully abstracted from a given formation, according to a given, a given procedure abs abstracted from its origin into, you know, possibility. And so there, are, there's an interplay of various bodies without organs here. It's not as though you can just attain the body without organs because we already recognize that it's a journey, not a destination. But even if you were to accomplish this thing called the body without organs, it might only mean you've entered into another stratum where you are presented with another plateau, another barrier that is guided by the logic of a body without organs that has mobilized an abstract machine to constitute it, but that we must then apply our you know condition for the possibility of possibility again to jump aboard this body that organs into something new and that we can reinscribe and then can inscribe upon us holy god i hope that made some little bit of sense and they are very clear that to attain the body without organs doesn't mean you just wildly destratify like you just get rid of all strata that for them is just falls into absolute collapse that they are not satisfied with Instead, you must keep small supplies of the organism, signification, and the subject, if only to turn them, uh, them against their own systems. So, in fact, to destroy the whole strata is a worse fate than staging or than staying stratified, which is a. I could see a lot of people having trouble swallowing this because it's they're just reformists at this point, right? They're just saying like we must work within the system where they prescribe a gentle tipping of the stratum and its assemblage towards the plane of consistency, which is just like, okay, okay, guys, do you want to get anywhere? Do you want anything new to happen? But anyways, they have faith and that's where their faith is. But this involves the renunciation of ourselves as organisms, as organized beings comprised of these organized organs. And so we want to get rid of ourselves as uh, we, or sorry, we want to mark the dissipation of the self into a glowing fog, a dark yellow mist in their words, that is comprised of effects, experiences, movements, and speeds. So there are 
body without organs on the plane of consistency, and there are body without organs produced by completely dismantling, but then there are body without organs on the stratum. So the, these are these are bad body with, bodies without organs. So I went a little fast there. Let me re-articulate that. There are good bodies without organs as we recognize them on the plane of consistency. There are also bodies without organs that are produced by completely dismantling, but then there are also bodies without organs on the stratum, on the specific stratum. So in the case where we totally destratify and we end up on this body without organs that has no direction, no course, it's just dead. Um, it's like the end of Neon Genesis Evangelion, if anyone's seen that. That show, or geez, bad memories, bad memories. Um, so there's that, which is not good. And then there are the body without organs that are directly attached to the stratum. And they equate this with like cancer cells that like proliferate and move around, but like in a destructive, violent way. And they also kind of relate to capitalism. Those are bad too. The only good body without organs is the one that is founded upon the plane of consistency. And that exists not within, not completely from without, but instead alongside the stratum and so is connected to the assemblage to some extent and it is that's why you know you can find these possibilities within the assemblage not from without and that propels us into the last chapter i'll cover here year zero chapter seven year zero faciality so year zero is referring to the birth of jesus christ in the christian tradition in which um uh, faciality was constructed as a kind of white, you know, with white Jesus, suddenly the idea of the face holds a whole lot of significance on the world stage. So the face is a site, as I've already said, for signification and subjectification. The face has its own, you know, content and its own expression. It has its own form and, and substance and everything. So the, the face can either assume two forms. It is either, in this case, the signification the face of signification, which is what they call a white wall that is comprised of kind of limited uh, possible like dots, you know, or it is um, a black hole that has like endless potential, but that is always like headed towards degree zero of nothingness, which is bad. So these are both not great. So the face is separate from the rest of the body because the face is like a, is a surface. That's all it is. And it is, it comes about in the bodies having been deterritorialized or having been decoded and it is ascribed a certain value but like the face the body can too be facialized and can become a surface to read essentially read the depths of the body rather than a depth as a depth itself so the body is like something to read you know and the, this is how doctors work you know they read symptoms and they use those to kind of get into the depths of the body so they there's a distinction to be made here between the face and faciality where the face is something like all things have you know all animals and creatures and whatever have have faces but faciality is when the face is inscribed with a kind of transcendent potential almost and because it is attached to signification or subjectification or the play of both then it comes about as i already made clear from then the abstract machine the abstract machine has some stake in this which would explain then why the emphasis on the face is not universal and if you look back to some kind of really early human sculptures and statues and cave paintings 
there are often times in which the face isn't like carved out because it's kind of strange that on the face, you know, we carve out space for the eyes and the mouth and the nose, where when we draw like arms or hands, you, we don't draw all the little in intricacies from the hand, like the lines along the hand or the, you know, various little hairs on, on the arm or, or whatever. Like these things remain pretty generic and smooth, whereas the face is given like a kind of superficial depth, these kind of jarring lines, at least in, in this assemblage. And did I conclude what I was saying? Where in the really early state formations, their art often has blank faces. Like if you look back, a lot of the times it's just a, a smooth face. So the task is then to challenge this faciality. And of course there are implications for faciality in terms of racism. Like faciality justifies racism in a number of different ways where uh, Deleuze and Guattari, um, they don't mean looking at others as though they don't have some relationship to faciality. Uh, essentially Europeans have made it so through colonization Instead, it is whether or not faces, uh, which are always recognized facially, are deviant from white European faces. And this possibility resides on the, um, on the establishment of faciality in the first place, that is, locating value within the face, which marks a move away from what they kind of narrowly associate with old people, not old people, but like primitive civilizations, which is not a great term, I know, but like um, ancient civilizations in which the body signified so much more than just what the face is, where, you know, animals look at a whole lot more in other animals than the face. We, we seem to be so obsessed with faces, it's really quite absurd. So despotic signification and authoritarian subjectification essentially colonize the body beyond the face to rid it of polyvocality or to rid it of heterogeneity. So despite this, you know, this isn't restricted to Europe. You know, it's not as though we're saying, uh, they're saying that um, Europe gave birth to this idea of faciality, because that would be, that'd be wrong. You know, other cultures look at the face as well. But what is specific to Europe, European white people, is the figure of Christ at year zero as white, essentially putting an end to all variations in regards to faciality, which, you know, it's one of the most absurd things about Christianity today is the way that Jesus is portrayed as white. Like it, it is the most absurd thing that two thousand years ago, in the Middle East, there was a white dude with a beard and ripped abs. So this is a pretty quick chapter, but they say to kind of conclude that in order to challenge faciality is to recognize these white walls and black holes that you know inscribe themselves on the face or set the conditions for faciality. Uh, and among those white walls and black holes, we must find new lines of flight that do not signal a return, because that would just be to go to the previous stratum, which has its own problems. Instead, it demands looking for the ways that various intensities manage to exist on the white wall or black hole, and we can then use those, appropriate them for our own becoming, our own possibilities. And that's that's that. So that covers up to chapter seven. Next time, next week, I'm going to start from chapter eight. And I just want to reiterate, I'm not doing chapters 11 and 13. I'm going to skip those because I've already done them on their own. So the chapters of the refrain or the plateaus of the refrain and apparatus of capture, I've already done on their own. So you can go find individual episodes for that. Uh, and yeah, 
So if you like what I did, you can support me. There are links in the description. Um, if I did anything wrong, I'd love to hear about it. And I'll catch you next time. Take care.